Welcome to another episode of Facts. As we continue to go through the New Testament scriptures and their canonicity, as we've already dealt with some of the New Testament books, we've gone through the Gospels, we've gone through Acts and Romans, we've even done the pastoral epistles. Uh, you can go back on YouTube and find all those, or if you just listen through the podcast Facts, you can find them all there as well. We're also going to go into the Old Testament. We're not just doing the New Testament. Uh, and with that, we want to be careful to examine both the external and the internal evidence for these books. Today's episode is going to be a very important one because it is, along with the pastoral epistles, a very disputed book. But the pastorals really weren't disputed, as we talked about in the early church. They were fully rece received as Paul's, and they were used as Pauline from a very early time that we looked at, even to the late first century. Whereas the book we're going to look at today, being the book of Jude, there was some dispute. In fact, the early church fathers even acknowledged some of the discrepancy or some of the arguments or the debates that maybe took place about this book. So I, I really do believe this is a very important episode. And if you are tuning in and this is your first time, I'm, I'm excited you're listening. And if it's somebody that's listening to this regularly, I ask that you take this into consideration and, and share it maybe on social media or with friends and, uh, and make sure you like and subscribe to what we're doing here on our YouTube channel and follow what we're doing on social media platforms like Instagram and Twitter uh, and Facebook. You can find our work there with Explore Christianity and also our website, explorechristianity.net. See some of our upcoming events. I'll be speaking along with many of the apologists up near Asheville, North Carolina, here shortly at a conference where a group of churches are coming together and hosting a conference on apologetics. Uh, I'll be speaking that first night and uh, early on Saturday morning. It's a Friday-Saturday uh, conference, and uh, we're looking forward to that. It's going to be exciting. we got guys coming from all over the country that are a part of our network uh, that are going to be speaking on their respected fields. All right, well, let's let's go ahead and jump into the book of Jude here. I think it's a very important book. And the question at hand is, why was the book of Jude disputed? And should we be concerned, really, that the book of Jude was disputed? And can we take a guy, if he's not an apostle, if he's Jude, the brother of Jesus, or if he's somebody that's not apostolic, uh, can we take a non-apostle? and produce an apostolic text and call it scripture? Can we say it is theanoustos, it is God-breathed? These are the things that I want to explore today. These are the things that I want us to consider today as we go into this book. And if you followed us for any length of time, you know the drill. We like to make the historical arguments first and then look into the internal arguments second, and that'll be the same protocol for today. In the historical arguments, one of the earliest testaments to Jude is Tertullian. And Tertullian had this to say, really not so much about Jude, but about his citation of the book of Enoch. And what he did is he worked through some of the turmoil the church was having over the book of Jude, but also over the book of Enoch and trying to validate both, actually, not just one, but both. He says this, but since Enoch in the same scripture has preached likewise concerning the Lord, 
Nothing at all must be rejected by us, which pertains to us. And we read that every scripture is suitable for edification and is divinely inspired. By the Jews, it may now seem to have been rejected for that very reason, talking about Enoch, just like all other portions nearly which tell of Christ. Now, this is where Tertullian and I might see differently. Now, I agree with him on the fact that uh, the Jews were looking to exclude in Old Testament terminology their canon if it related to Christ or any teaching that related to Christ from the Old Testament canon. And so he's actually trying to defend Enoch here. And it seems if he's almost trying to include it as scripture. Now, I, I would say that we need to be very cautious here. And if you missed the episode on the book of Enoch, I did an entire discussion on, is it canonical? You can, again, find that on YouTube or on our uh, podcast, Facts. And you can hear more explanation of why I believe it is not canonical. But I don't think that Tertullian necessarily was looking to defend all of what we would call the book of Enoch today. Remember, there's multiple books of Enoch. And even within First Enoch, there's multiple books within First Enoch. So I don't believe that Tertullian was necessarily defending what we would call a collected group of First Enoch. But I think there's prophecy in it that he believed was pres preserved from ancient times that made it through the history of the Jews. I think that's what he's getting at here, more than the whole thing or what we would call the book of First Enoch today. He says, nor, of course, is this fact wonderful, that they did not receive some scriptures which spoke of him, whom even in person speaking in their presence, they were not to receive. To these considerations, it is added that the fact that Enoch possesses a testimony in the apostle Jude. So what he's saying is, all right, so he brings us back and says, in this fact, it's wonderful. They did not receive some of the scriptures which spoke of Christ. They were rejecting Christology. Any Old Testament scripture that could be considered Christology, they were rejecting it as applied to Jesus of Nazareth. So he's saying, no wonder they're rejecting even works like Enoch that predict messianic hope that is actually being fulfilled in Jesus because they do that with other scriptures. Now, he likens the book of Jude as a argument of validation, saying that even like the other scriptures that speak of Christ, Jude saw fit to include Enoch and possesses testimony to his prophecy of the Messiah. And, and rightfully so. So he does quote the book of Enoch, and I know that there are some that try to pose an argument, the whoa, no, Jude isn't quoting the book of Enoch. Enoch is actually quoting the book of Jude, or taking it from that, because it came later. And I've heard that argument. Most of that actually comes from King James Onlyism camps. Um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for multiple reasons. The most important, if you go back to the Enoch video, you'll you'll hear, is that we have manuscripts of the section that Jude quotes that are earlier than the book of Jude. Second, you have statements like this, where Tertullian in the second century recognized there's actually quotations from the book of Enoch in the letter of Jude. Now, one of the discrepancies that we'll come up against here is that he mentions that the book of Jude is from the Apostle Jude. 
And that's where some of the controversy will come in. But we'll, we'll come back around to that in just a minute. Also, the Muratorian Fragment, which we've talked about quite a bit lately, which is at the end of the second century between 170 and 200 AD. It states one little line here, which includes uh, the second and third epistle of John. But he says this, moreover, the epistle of Jude and two of the above mentioned bearing the name of John, being second and third John, are counted in the universal church. They're accepted or received or counted within the church as a whole. So by the time of the end of the second century, the churches across the world had received both Jude and second and third John. Now I'm going to give some hypothesis as to why this is debated a little bit into this, why letters like second and third John were debated, but not first. Why letters like Jude and James were debated and second Peter were debated, but not first Peter and not some of the other letters that we see in the New Testament, like Philemon, which we've done a little bit of work on, and looking at the pastoral epistles. We're going to get into some of the whys as we continue to develop in this series. So the Muratorian fragment tells us that the churches universally, by that time, had already received this as scripture. Now, Clement of Alexandria says, Jude, who wrote the Catholic epistle, the brother of the sons of Joseph, and very religious, while knowing the near relationship of the Lord, yet did not say that he himself was his brother. But what did he say? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, of him as Lord, both the brother, but the brother of James. So here's what Clement is doing. He's interpreting verse one there of Jude, and he's actually going into the reality that Jude, though he was the brother of Jesus, a son of Joseph, did not put that in his description, rather calling himself a servant of Jesus, but a brother of James. Now we'll talk again more about this as we go through. He says, for this is true. He was his brother, the son of Joseph. Now, Clement of Alexandria is saying that this was not the apostle Jude or Judas. Now remember, there's two apostles with the name Judas. Yet Judas Iscariot, and as John calls him, Judas not Iscariot, and he was called other names like Thaddeus. Uh, but with that, there becomes controversy because Jude had a brother named James in the apostleship. You had Judas, not Iscariot, who is a brother of James the Less. And then you have Jude, the son of Joseph, who is the brother of James the Just. So you have two sets of brothers that are a part of the scenery of Jesus's ministry. His brothers, his half-brothers, Jude and James. And then he had two apostles named Jude and James. So it creates this controversy about which Jude might be potential. It seems like Tertullian is indicating the apostle Jude wrote it unless he was actually referring to Jude, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle, which it wouldn't be unheard of for that to be the case. But I, I would lean with Clement here, and we'll see more of that in a minute, who's insinuating that this is the half-brother of Jesus by even saying he refused to call himself that, but rather the brother of James. Now, Origen, we've got quite a few quotes from him because Origen actually creates some controversy himself because people use him as a reason to believe Jude was not 
writing an inspired text. Now, this letter was not a part of what we would call canon, but that's actually not the case. There is one statement by Origen that seems to be um, a little bit controversial as to where his mind was with the book of Jude. It's like he accepted it as undeniable, but yet placed some questions on it in one single paragraph. But what we're going to see today, and I picked three out of five of his statements about Jude that are, to me, very clear that he accepted them as canonical and recognized them as apostolic and even traces it to an individual. But he goes back afterward, after Clement, and he makes these comments in relation to the book of Jude. He says, and Jude who wrote a letter of few lines. It is true, but filled with the healthful words of heavenly grace said in the preface, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother James. With regard to Joseph and Simon being one of the other, um, this is important. Now, let's, let's stop here again. He's in agreement with Clement of Alexandria. He's important. It's important for us to pause right here and say, okay, you have Clement before him saying this is a son of Joseph. And he actually goes further than Clement and includes another brother outside of James being Simon, which you'll find in the gospels, because that's actually what, you know, Origen's doing here. He's actually giving an explanation of Matthew 13, 55 when he's making this statement. He's not doing a commentary on Jude in this quote. He's doing one on Matthew. And this is what he says. With regard to Joseph and Simon, we have nothing to tell. But the saying, and his sisters, are they not with us? So he's identifying Jude, the brother of Simon and James, and the half-brother of Jesus. He's making it clear that he was the writer of a letter that is of few lines, meaning it's a shorter epistle. And it is, it's the one that we have. He says, it is true. And he even said it was filled with healthful words of heavenly grace, giving really a kind shout out to its type of terminology. Then he says in his interpretation of the book of Joshua 7 and verse 1, he gives an explanation here, kind of spiritualizes some of the things there in Joshua. And again, you got to remember, we're talking about origin. He was very allegorical in his interpretations. Uh, he was not known for being literal in his interpretations of the Old Testament texts. Very allegorical. I don't necessarily agree with his interpretations, but he does give us some insight to his mind of what he believes is going on. And he says this, but when our Lord Jesus Christ comes, whose arrival that prior the son of none designated, he sends priests, his apostles, bearing trumpets hammered thin, the magnificent and heavenly instruction of proclamation. Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also, Luke and John each played their own priestly trumpets. Even Peter cries out with trumpets in two of his epistles. Also James and Jude. Now, note what he's doing here. He's actually giving a proclamation to the coming of Christ, liking similarly to Joshua, the son of Nun, and that when he was going in, these trumpets were sounded. And so he spiritualizes Joshua 7 and says, there were trumpets preceding Christ. 
And he goes into it, and then he talks about his return, his coming, and that these trumpets were being sounded by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And then he even goes into Peter and states that Peter has two. Now, we'll come back to that when we do Second Peter. And then he focuses on the two epistles of James and Jude, giving them equality of value to the four Gospels. Then in his interpretation of Genesis chapter 12, he once again gives an allegorical approach to Isaac digging wells. He says, Isaac therefore digs also new wells, nay, rather Isaac's servants dig them. Isaac's servants are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. His servants are Peter, James, Jude. The apostle Paul is his servant. These all dig the wells, catch it, of the new Testament. What Origen is telling us is that when you look at these books like Genesis, he sees Isaac digging wells. Again, he allegorizes. I, I, believe me, I actually do not agree with his interpretation of Joshua 7 or of Genesis 12. But I do see within his statement where he believes these were canonical scriptural books, that these were authoritative doctrines from the apostles. And that's what he told us earlier in Joshua 7. He says, these are the priests, his apostles, bearing trumpets. And then he lists these writers. And then he does the same thing here for Genesis 13. He says, Isaac had servants digging the wells. And these wells were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then he includes within that Jude. So I would say, despite the controversial things that we see in one statement by Origen about Jude, it's pretty clear, especially in Genesis 13 too, it's pretty clear to me that when he says these all dig the wells of the New Testament, he's saying that Jude was a writer of a New Testament collection of books equal to the collection with the four Gospels. That's a big deal uh, that Origen would give it that kind of status. Eusebius, the church historian, uh, says this, it is observed, or is to be observed, that its authenticity is denied, since few of the ancients quote it. Also is the case with the epistle called Jude, which itself one of the seven called Catholic. So he's saying there's, there's some discrepancy in the church that deny the authenticity of the book of Jude, which in itself is one of the seven Catholic epistles. So they'd already collected them at this point, uh, and we still call them that today, the Catholic epistles. Nevertheless, he says, we know that these letters have been used publicly with the rest in most churches. So in the discrepancy, specifically, we're not going to focus on the first one. It's that we're we're going to focus on Jude that he's saying. It was used by the ancients. It was read publicly in the churches for liturgy with all the other letters. And most churches were utilizing it as canonical. Jerome says this over in Rome. Jude, the brother of James, left a short epistle which is reckoned among the seven Catholic epistles. And because it is he who quotes from the apocryphal book of Enoch, it is rejected by many. Nevertheless, so he has another left statement just like you see this. So he's recognizing people have a, an issue with Jude. 
Jerome actually gives us a little bit more insight as to why there was a discrepancy with Jude. And the discrepancy comes from the reality that it quotes an apocryphal work. Now, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but he's giving you a reason why people were rejecting it in some of the churches. But he says this, nevertheless, by age and usage, it has gained authority and is reckoned amongst the holy scriptures. So again, Eusebius and Jerome saying the same thing. Yes, there was a fight. And yes, there was discrepancy. And, and really, he's telling you why there was discrepancy. But he's saying, but nevertheless, it, it, it's, it's old, it's ancient, it's gained authority, and it's been reckoned amongst the Holy Scriptures despite all of the debates. So the question then comes down to this. Which Jude is this? Which Jude are we talking about here? The dispute amongst the citations of the patristics and the fathers is not whether or not this letter goes back to an eyewitness. That needs to be instantly acknowledged. No one in the statements I've given to you are looking to debate whether it belonged to an apostolic authority or an eyewitness. Because whether it is Jude, the apostle, or whether it's Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, both are eyewitnesses to Jesus and knew him. So we have to keep that in mind right from the beginning. But the question is, okay, so which one is it? Because again, Tertullian seems to indicate that it is actually the apostle based on a statement defending Enoch. But everybody else seems to make it clear that it is the half-brother of Jesus. The discrepancy comes due to the opening in addition to what we just read from the patristics and the fathers. So the discrepancy also comes in the opening. He says, Jude, the brother of James. Does this correspond with Luke 16 or 616 as well as Acts 113? Because Luke indicates this same phrase that there's Jude or Judas or Judah, the brother of James. Talking about James the last. That's how he's listed by Luke, both in his gospel and in Acts. So does that create a problem too? That he would use the terminology that Luke gave him? Or is it just simply Jude, the brother of James, James the Just, who was the first bishop in Jerusalem? Because there were two sets of brothers with the names James and Jude, it was difficult for even the biblical writers to distinguish them. Uh, that's why they're attaching names. Names have credibility and identification. Typically, you would put the father there, like the son of so-and-so. But that's not the case here. And there's times in the apostolic group that a father would not do, and uh, they would use a brother or they would use a connection to a father. For example, you had a set of brothers. You have James and John. So you have them being called the sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder. And then you have when James is killed in the book of Acts, he makes an identification of that James because of the same chapter of his death. He mentions James, the brother of Jesus, or known as James the just. So he identifies him as James, the brother of John, so that you're not confused as to which James was executed there in the book of Acts. The same thing happens all through there. This is how 
Paul distinguished James in Galatians chapter one, that he was the brother of the Lord. Now, James have referred that for himself, but Paul did not so that you would not be confused with the other two Jameses that were apostles. Now, I had a debate, an entire debate with uh, Dr. Richard Carrier about this. You can find that on our channel. Uh, well, I don't, actually, I don't think it's on our channel. It's actually circulated uh, on the internet. You can YouTube Stephen Boyce versus Richard Carrier, and it'll come right up. Uh, and see my explanation of Galatians one more and why people did that in the first century writings as Paul did there. There needs to be a clear identification. Well, what this does for us is it creates a good problem and a bad problem. The good problem is it literally limits it down to two possibilities. Both of those possibilities are James the Apostle, an eyewitness, or James the brother of Jesus, another eyewitness. Either way, we're now in a very important group that is qualified to produce a letter like this. So we've eliminated a lot of other people but the only problem that does come from this is the reality that we have to try to figure out which one it is. Overwhelmingly, it seems from the early patristics and fathers that this goes back to the brother of Jesus. And we'll give more reasons as to why I believe that is the case as well. And Jerome recognized this too, that there's multiple names that are being debated or trying to be identified in the early patristics and into the biblical text themselves. So Jerome called Jude a man with three names. In Mark 3.18, he's called Thaddeus. In Matthew 10.3, he's called Lebus or Lebius. His surname was Thaddeus. In Luke 16 and Acts uh, 1.13, he's called Judas, the brother of James. Judas Thaddeus was also called Judas the Zealot. It should be noted that Jude distances himself, though, in the letter that we have from the apostolic group. So, so Jerome is telling us there was a dispute about some names, but there was other names or surnames given to help distinguish. Thaddeus being one of the most important ones, uh, which Mark calls him, and Matthew 10.3 is Lebius. And his third name, surname was Thaddeus. So Luke is the only one that actually goes into giving him the Judas name. But John calls him Judas, not Iscariot in his gospel. So there was attempts to bring clarity amongst the group because there was two Simons. There's two Jameses. Uh, there's obviously two Judases. And to make sure you never got that one wrong, they always included the Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord to make sure that you didn't confuse him with the others. And so there was an attempt, even in the biblical writings, to bring distinguished names. But what we need to recognize about this Jude internally, a big argument for me as to why it's not the Apostle Jude, one, historically he was killed. Very early on, it is said that he went to Edessa, uh, died in the early 60s, uh, was probably um, really died before Peter and Paul, I would say. It, it more likely died around 63. Some say it could be as late as 69. I, it seems to me that it was earlier in the 60s. So I, do, I, I don't think it was him just from that perspective. But also internally, the writer seems to distinguish himself from the apostolic groups in verse 17. 
He says, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not including himself with the apostles. Uh, Peter does and Paul does, but why isn't he including himself with the apostles? Uh, it's because I don't believe he was one of the 12. I don't think he was a part of that group. And I think he's admitting that here, which would eliminate Jude, the apostle who died in the early 60s. I, I don't believe it's him just on those two ideas there. But outside of the helps of Clement and Origen, the internal evidence will also give us, outside of verse 17, more things to consider to distinguish which Jude it was in the opening. If this epistle was written from the Jerusalem Judea region or anywhere in what we call Palestine, an association with James would be a big deal, saying that he's the, br the brother of James the Just. And the reason for that is this, because he was the first bishop in Jerusalem. And if you link yourself to the first bishop in Jerusalem over the Church of Jerusalem, your credibility is heightened. Now, we know from Eusebius' statement that Jesus' family continued to live in Israel, even past to their martyrdoms. Whereas Judas Thaddeus, the apostle, he was known for going to Edessa. So if this letter was truly from a Palestinian region, which we're going to talk about in a minute why I believe it was, it wouldn't be Judas Thaddeus who went to Edessa. It would be Judas, the brother of Jesus and James and Simon, the son of Joseph, who is doing this. Richard Bauckham argues that Jude, this letter, came from Palestine. He said this, quote, at no point where he alludes to specific verses of the Old Testament does he echo the language of the Septuagint. In two of these cases, he must depend on the Hebrew text because the Septuagint does not give even the meaning he adopts. Speaking of Proverbs 25, 14 and Isaiah 57, 20. While in three other cases, his vocabulary notably fails to correspond to that of the Septuagint. Talking about in verse 11, particularly of Jude going to Numbers 26, verse 9. And then in verse 12, connecting that to Ezekiel 34, verse 2. And then in verse 23, He's connecting it to Amos 4.11 and Zechariah 3.3. 3. And he's saying they fail to correspond with Septuagint readings. It seems the writer was more dependent on the Hebrew text, putting it into Greek. So why would somebody do that unless they were in that region or co corresponding with these texts in that region and writing it to people who were in that region? It's a good argument. It doesn't prove everything, but I, I happen to agree with Bauckham, but he also says this as well. Bauckham also says, quote, we should notice that the general character of this letter is its Jewishness, its debt to Palestinian Jewish literature. And that is, that is absolutely true. Uh, even the book of Enoch being one of those and the assumption of Moses, which the early father said is what he's quoting there, which we don't have. Uh, we have estimated fragmented statements, but we don't have the surviving copies of that, like we do for Enoch. But with that being said, they are very Jewish type readings. Uh, nobody outside of really the Jews would have been that interested uh, in some of these writings, especially the Assumption of Moses. Now we know later that the Ethiopic church became enamored with first Enoch, but it was really a primarily Jewish fascination, Jewish folk, Jewish storytelling, Jewish history 
That's what they were going for. And so he's appealing to a Jewish crowd by bringing in two quotes from that, because outside of the Jews, which is a part of their literature, they wouldn't have understood what Jude was talking about. It wouldn't have had any relevance because they're not familiar with the works. They're not familiar with those texts. He also says it's apocalyptic perspective and exegetical methods. It concerns for ethical practice more than for doctrinal belief are all entirely consistent with authorship by Jude, the brother of Jesus. So again, he's connecting that there to the brother of Jesus, but he's also saying that this writing is appealing to a Jewish audience in every facet of its writing. And, and I happen to agree with Bauckham there. So what are the objections to Jude? So what is the object, objections that this could be a writing from the, from the brother of Jesus? Well, the first objection is Jude wouldn't have written in such eloquent Greek if he was the son of a carpenter. Jude would have never been able to write in this kind of Greek. And, and I will say, I actually, through this study, since it was short, quite a bit of the Greek structure and syntax of Jude, it is very well done. Um, I mean, it's, it's up there with Luke. Uh, I never realized how precise and clean of a writing it is. So... Would a carpenter's child be able to produce such eloquent Greek text? Well, let, let's consider two things. One, we assume a lot here. We assume after these men became followers of a very literate rabbi, Jesus obviously was able to read uh, letters and ancient texts and scrolls. We see that in the gospel narratives. He was well-spoken very educated. Even the Pharisees couldn't understand how well his teachings and doctrines were without going through the systematic state, uh, the systematic teachings that they did through the rabbi systems and their equipping. So Jesus was very literate. He was able to read. He was able to write. He was able to speak. We assume that when these writers, like the apostles or the followers, which Jude became a follower of his own brother, they didn't believe him at first, but eventually, that they ceased once Jesus resurrected to continue in their apprenticeship and discipleship to Jesus. That they didn't further their education. That they didn't further their approach to understanding. That they didn't further their studies, further their writings. Yes, some of the apostles were fishermen. Yes, some of the apostles were carpenters or those that were following Jesus were in the skill of carpentry, perhaps. But they didn't stay that way. That's not what they went back to after Jesus and his ministry and his death and burial and resurrection. That's not what they did. They didn't go back. They moved forward as church leaders, as teachers, instructors. I believe that these men would have furthered their education. If a book like Jude would have been 40 years after Jesus's life, roughly 35 to 40 years after Jesus's life, that's a lot of time for a young man like Jude to have developed his skills. I'm not, I'm no way saying that he was absolutely the writer. I'm just saying that that reasoning that's given to not just books like Jude, but other books like John, which we talked about, insinuate a lot about these guys. We're insinuating they never developed anything after their life-changing experiences of following their rabbi. A second reason. Jude could have used an amanuensis. 
Jude could have used somebody to write his work for him, as I believe John the Apostle did in his gospel. He was not short of it in Ephesus, nor do I believe Jude would have lacked the ability to find someone eloquent enough to write his message for him in a very precise way. There's a lot of possibilities that eliminate that first objection. The second objection is Jude wouldn't have written or had written for him a letter with such eloquent Greek if his audience was Jewish. Gene Green gives actually a good argument to this. He believes that this letter could have been written to a very highly educated group there in the Palestinian region. And uh, he believes it's very possible because if you just go to Acts chapter 2, you find that the Jews had a lot of Hellenized people. They were dealing with it. And in chapter 6, they had to deal with it and, and, and deal with the discrepancy by electing deacons to help out in the church with the problems that came from some of the Hellenized Jews that were part of the church there. So the idea of, well, if he's writing to a Jewish audience, it couldn't be him. It wouldn't be from Jerusalem because they wouldn't want that kind of Greek writing. Well, no, because most of the Jews at that point were more Hellenized than they were anything. Only the high up religious leaders were still writing and utilizing the Hebrew texts. Most of them had already worked their way toward using Greek as their base because that was the language that had taken over by that point. And many of the Jews had lost their ability to understand, read and write in Hebrew. They may have knew, knew certain phrasings or statements or comments or words that they would have been familiar with. But as a whole, the language was not a primary language for them at that point. A third objection, Jerome's theory of rejection. It quotes from an apocryphal source, such as Enoch and uh, Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. So, therefore, this would not be an inspired text. They're quoting outside sources. They're not quoting canonical books. Listen, referencing apocryphal works does not eliminate authenticity of a writing and its canonicity. This is something Tertullian struggled with that we read earlier. But let's be real. Hebrews quotes apocryphal works quite a bit. I did an entire episode on Hebrews and the Apocrypha. You can go find that on the channel as well. Paul quotes men like Aratus, Menander, Epimendes. I mean, that doesn't mean they're not canonical. These citations do not eliminate canonical status. What they tell us is that there are truths in the universe that you can find in other literature, philosophy, and history that is that is valuable. It doesn't mean you accept everything in those works like you would scripture, but it does mean that within even Jewish histories and Jewish tales and Jewish apocryphal works, that there is something to learn from them. And even the biblical writers accepted things like, hey, Enoch said these things in his prophecies. It could be that he recognized that section of Enoch and that statement is historically accurate and true. It doesn't make the whole thing biblical, but it means he saw it as true. So I think we should... Stop using, well, if that uses outside scripture, outside of scripture to be its 
basis of argument, then it's not canonical. That needs to go away because a lot of New Testament writers did that. So how do we date a book like this? In fact, I would say Jude is probably one of the most complicated New Testament books to date. The phrase in verse 18 seems to be quoting an after statement from a previous statement in 2 Peter. Um, and I, I really think that Jude is after 2 Peter. Now, we'll talk about that in a little bit, why I think that more de in more detail. But you have here in verse 18 of Jude, you have a statement. He says, how they, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last times who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Now, we'll come back to this verse in a minute. But he uses a phrase here, an eschatochrono, an eschatochrono, last times, end days, end times. It's an identical statement used in 1 John 2, 18. Now, what I think is happening here is, is quite fascinating. Peter was speaking of these events in 2 Peter, because that, that verse is quoting 2 Peter 3, and almost word for word. And Peter seems to be speaking of a future, really, crisis that's coming to the church. Jude's looking back at that quote and making the statement almost of this. He's saying that day has come. This is the last times. And that would go and correspond with 1 John 2.18, where John's saying, my little children, it is the N eschato chrono. It is the last days. It is the last times. So to me, John saying his audience was in the last days, which seems to be a term that comes post-70 AD. Peter lived before 70 AD. He died right before it. It seems like John began to look at the destruction of Jerusalem as there's nothing left for us to finalize these last days. The imminent return of Jesus is simply that, imminent. So that point forward... From the time of the resurrection, it, I believe the last days began. But it seems like the biblical writer started to emphasize the last days in a post-70 AD way. Now, I know that I have friends who believe 1 John and all these other books are before 70 AD. I think you have to do a lot of backflips. I've said this before in this program. You have to rewrite history. You have to eliminate attestation. And I don't believe a presuppositional viewpoint of your eschatology is a good idea to start using to reinterpret history. I don't believe that's what we do. Look, I'd love for them to all be pre-70 AD. And just, I mean, honestly, that would make some things a little bit easier. Um, but I want to be honest with the data. I do not believe any of John's writings preceded 70 AD. Um, I don't believe he started writing till much later in his old age. We have indication of that by attestation of the early fathers. Uh, the timeline of the book of the apocalypse, especially uh, with Valentinius and Irenaeus and others, place it in the time of Domitian, which is 86, 84 to, to 96. I mean, there's too many problems. The last day's terminology seemed to be a post-70 AD destruction of Jerusalem terminology. And he's using it here in Jude quoting Peter 
as if it was a previous statement that was a futuristic statement that Jude sees as being reality in his time, later than Peter. And if Peter died in 68, and that's looking to a time when the church would struggle with these things where scoffers and mockers would come in pursuing their own ungodly lust, he's saying that time will come. Jude's saying it has come. The apostles said it would come. He seems to be speaking of a time after, in a time after Peter's prediction. This could give us a framework that this was written at a time where he was a contemporary of John the Apostle or close to. Now, again, we have to put a cutoff date here too. So before I get to where I think it's dated, we got to put a cutoff. Like it's no later than because some people put the book of Jude in the second century. And I, I just don't understand how they can get away with that. It's not likely after 96 to 98 because the book of first Clement uses his closing in the same manner that Jude did in first Clement 64, one and 65 two. I demonstrated this in my doctoral work. I've showed this and grafted in my research. So first Clement is quoting Jude and using his salutation at the very end there. Um, Clement is dated, in my opinion, some would say it's even earlier. I, I date Clement between 96 and 98. And if that is the case, then Jude can't be after Clement. So the cutoff date here is 96 to 98. That's where we're going to put a cutoff date. This is likely to be somewhere then, and let's just give the preterist the benefit of the doubt here, the semi-preterist, that it is pre-70. It wouldn't be any earlier than 68. If Peter died in 68, it wouldn't be any, and he's the one that's behind 2 Peter, which again, we'll do 2 Peter later. Don't worry. If he's behind that and he died in 68, then it can't be any earlier than 68. So we're stuck between 68 and 98. That's that's a big gap. That's That's 30 years. But at least we have a gap that we can work now and try to shrink a little bit more. So one of the other things I think that we need to keep in mind is... Hegesippus. You say, why is Hegesippus relevant to any of what we're dealing with? Well, here's why I believe Hegesippus is relevant. He said this, of the family of the Lord, there are still living the grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's Adelphu, or his brother, according to the flesh. Now, what ended up happening, we don't have time in this program to go through it, in fact, if you actually watch the debate I referenced earlier to uh, when I dealt with uh, Dr. Richard Carrier, I bring this quote in and actually go further detail with it. Hegesippus said that there was an investigation that went on by Domitian. And Domitian started investigating bloodline of Jesus, trying to figure out if he's coming back to set up his kingdom. He feels threatened. And so he's trying to do an investigation. And naturally, um, the best place to start is if there was a dude who lived and he died and he claimed to be this king and prophesied his own return and his followers are saying he's coming back and setting up this kingdom, you go to the family to find out, hey, is your distant relative or your, soon, your not so long ago relative, what's the deal? Is he a threat to my kingdom? Is he a threat to my rule here in Rome? Naturally, Domitian would do that. 
So it seems like what happened is Domitian banned John on the island of Patmos, kind of separating the lock and the key, the churches and the apostle. So separates them and does this investigation. And apparently, according to Hegesippus, he brought a couple of the grandchildren of Jude who were still living relatives of Jesus at the time of this investigation. So Jude would have been dead by this point. Only his grandchildren remain. So Domitian is around 84 or so to 96. 84 to 96, Domitian died. So this is somewhere after that period. So we can eliminate some more years. Jude is already dead by the time Domitian did his investigation of the family of Jesus. Only his grandchildren live. So now that puts us somewhere pre-84. Now, there's still a lot of time there. 68 to 84 is still a long time. And Jude's children, by implication, would also be dead. That or they weren't available, but uh, the grandchildren of Jude still at least survived enough for them to be investigated. But it would be apparent that Jude's children are dead too. So Jude's dead and his children are likely dead as well. And all that exists is his grandchildren. Now, I happen to believe this investigation took place in the 90s. I believe that Domitian ended up doing this investigation because he did not want to turn into the maniac that uh, went before him, causing him problems with all these people ahead of time because Domitian did have a slightly, uh, well, I, I, it did impact the church, but he did have a persecution that went on. And he was really trying to get to the bottom of this. He didn't want to just go out and start slaughtering people like Nero did. He didn't want to be like a maniac like Nero. So he actually did an investigation. But it appears, based on the timeline we have of the book of Revelation, which would have been written in the 90s, late 90s, that he marooned John on an island for the purpose of investigating what this teaching of the kingdom is all about, separating lock and key. So I believe that the event that Hegesippus is referring to would have been in the 90s. So by the 90s, in my opinion, uh, he would have already been dead and his children would have already been dead. So that puts us somewhere, in my opinion, between 68 and 84. All right, so now we're, we're, we're eliminating this. So I'm going to conjecture, particularly giving time for Jude to die and his children, I believe this probably would happen somewhere between 68 and 78. I'm going to give a 10-year window. I'm going to conjecture here a little bit that it's going to be somewhere between 68 and 78 AD. I personally think it was early 70s. I, I, I personally think it was right after the destruction of the temple. I think this is after the, a major scatter. I think that Jude is writing right after potentially his own brother's death. We don't, we don't know. But he seems to be inserting himself in a leadership position to try to aid the churches and the believers that the apostasy has come. Now, apostasy was around even, and, and false teachings were around even before Peter and Paul died. They dealt with it. Peter dealt with it. But Peter dealt with it more in a futuristic way, which we just talked about. Paul dealt with it more in Judaism and early stages of Gnosticism. 
But really after destruction, when Gnosticism really took off, that's where it seems like John comes hammering. Then there's these concepts of Jewish teachings that are coming in and in in what he does and deals with, and he never uses the word apostasy, but he's completely defining it and describing it throughout the entire epistle. He's fighting back. He's fighting back against these teachings. And he's liking them to the age stories they've always heard as Jews. The wars of angels that fell. The Sodom and Gomorrah stories. Balaam and Balak. I mean, he's going back to deal with this issue the way it had been done in the past. So it seems like he is combating teachings after the destruction and dispersion in 70 AD, where they're really fighting hard against the teachings of of the churches that have come out and perverted the gospel. And he's doing it as somebody who's associating. And again, keep in mind, I think he's doing a good job by giving himself credibility. One, he's claiming to be the brother of James, who had great credibility to the Jewish churches. Uh, Two, that makes him a brother of Jesus. So now he's an eyewitness. So he has that going for him. And another thing that we're going to find here is he does not speak independently on his own authority. He speaks on the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. And as we read in verse 17, and we'll look at in a minute, the authority of the apostles. He's dependent on Old Testament texts for authority and apostolic authority in their texts. While being an eyewitness and a brother of James. To me, this this would be more of a post-70 AD. I'll give a benefit of the doubt of my date by saying 68 to 78, just in a conjecturing way, but I really would probably bring that to the early 70s. Now, the reason for not going past 78, I gave. But at the end of the day, I believe this could be traced to Jude, the brother of Jesus, the brother of James. What time he died, we don't know for sure. What time his children died, we don't know for sure. We just know that during Domitian, he was probably dead. I do not believe this goes any later than that. So I would place the date there. So now let's talk about the composition. Let's talk about the similarities between it and 2 Peter. I've been hinting at this quite a bit. Seems like 2 Peter gives the start, Jude's following his lead which most of modern scholarship actually reverses this to where Jude is first and Zeg Peter is following Jude. I'm going to give you every reason why I believe that is nonsense. And I believe the main reason actually that is the case is because they're trying to discredit Petrine authority and authorship to Second Peter. But let's just talk about some of the similarities. And I won't read all these for the sake of time. There are major similarities between Second Peter and Jude. One, 2 Peter 1.5, where it says, Now for this very reason also, apply all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. That's very much linked to Jude 3. He says, While I was making every effort to write to you about the common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once all handed down and delivered to the saints. He's connecting all of these things, the diligence of applying to their faith, this connection. Now, again, there's actually up to 16, and I, I actually don't think there's 16. I've limited it to 12 to 14. And I won't read all these. 2 Peter 1, 12, connected to Jude 5. 2 Peter 2, 1, connected to Jude 4. 2 Peter 2, 3, connected to Jude 16. 
2 Peter 2.4 connected to Jude 6. 2 Peter 2.6 connected to Jude 7. 2 Peter 2.10 connected to Jude 8. 2 Peter 2.11 connected to Jude 9, which, which goes about to the angelic wars. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause right here and say something about that. What I note about Jude is he is dependent on 2 Peter's authority. But I think he's actually dependent not just on 2 Peter's authority, but also Paul. And you say, well, where are you getting that from? He makes a statement, which we're going to look at in just a second, that connects to apostles of Jesus Christ while quoting 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, what Jude is doing is he's he's also using the same literature that Peter does. And I'll, I'll explain that when we get to it in a second. But note that Jude is connecting his theology and statements to already established similar statements by 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2.12 says, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And then, like connected to Jude 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct. That's exactly what Peter said. Like unreasoning animals, which is what he just said in saying Peter, by these things they are, same word, destroyed. Second Peter 2.15, quote, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. For they pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perish in the rebellion of Korah. Then you have connection to 2 Peter 2.17 with Jude 12 through 13. 2 Peter 2.18 with Jude 16. 2 Peter 3.2 with Jude 17. 2 Peter 3, 3 with Jude 18. And these are the ones I want to focus on. Now, there's two more that I, I dispute there in the salutation. I, I, I don't necessarily believe it. Some would say there's two more. But let's talk about 2 Peter 3, 2 and 2 Peter 3, 3 with Jude 17 and 18. Because I think these are indicators to us. Note the words of 2 Peter 3 and verse number 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord Jesus spoken by your apostles. Now, Peter already established himself in that group in 2 Peter chapter 1. He's saying that you should remember these things. These things are going to be spoken before, they were already spoken by the prophets, and now the apostles are speaking. Note verse 17 of Jude. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back up to 2 Peter. The beforehand of 2 Peter was not the apostles. That's the present. The beforehand of Peter is the prophets. Now, Jude's saying the beforehand is the apostles. So if you follow the chronology here, Peter say, hey, beforehand, you should remember these teachings. Just as your apostles are teaching. Jude is saying, oh, wait, look over here. Remember before what the apostle said, looking back on it, just as Peter looked back on the 
past the, the prophets and the current apostles. Seems the Jude is writing after. If you need further evidence, look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, 2 Peter 3, 3, that in the last days, mockers, catch it, will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Future prediction. Verse 18 of Jude. That they were saying to you, the apostles were, notice this, were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers after their own ungodly lust. So here's Jude saying, uh, he literally quoted 2 Peter 3.3 3, and attributed it to catch it, apostles, plural. So why, why didn't he just say singular? Well, one, 2 Peter likens his authority to the apostles. We just saw that in verse 2 of 2 Peter 3. There's a second reason I think Jude does this, because in that same section of 2 Peter 3, follow it to the end, he says they're distorting this, they're distorting all of Paul's letters the same way they did all the other holy scriptures. So their distortion, their perversion, their, their mockery is linked to their apostasy. And Peter was saying it was going to come, and they were doing it to Paul's letters. They did it to the scriptures. We should expect this to come in the future. Jude is telling his audience what they told you would come is here. So when he says the apostles of the Lord Jesus, I think he's specifically talking about Peter and Paul, but yes, it could be included that he's talking about the whole apostolic group, just like Peter was in verse two. But what we find here is that Jude is completely dependent on second Peter. I don't know why anybody would place Second Peter after Jude, unless they purposely do not want to stomach the fact that Peter's behind Second Peter. Now, again, we're not going to get into Second Peter today. I promise you we'll do a video on it. We'll do an episode for it. I have my own thoughts about why First Second Peter is so different. Don't misunderstand me. I, I recognize some issues, but I do also want to take time to walk through them. But let's just focus on the wording here. Jude is looking back and quoting 2 Peter 3, saying that this was stated beforehand. Again, this is why I do not believe that Jude is before 70 AD. But notice if that's the case, what Jude is doing. He's dependent on the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes them everywhere. And all of these connections to 2 Peter, he is building and expanding on them. He's dependent on apostolic authority. He's dependent on his eyewitness credibility. He's dependent on his connection to their bishop, their first ever bishop, James, the brother of the Lord. He's dependent on the apostles before him and their teachings. And what that shows us is that Jude gets accused of, well, he's using apocryphal works. He's using books that are not in the canon. Well, so was 2 Peter. And if you notice this, even when Jude leaves the biblical texts, he leaves the stories of Genesis with Cain. And he leaves the stories of Balaam and Balak. And when he leaves those stories, what's incredible is he uses two apocryphal sources, which we believe to be the assumption of Moses and we, we know to be Enoch. He only would use approved lists that Peter used before him. You say, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? 
I believe Jude used only biblical texts and apostolic statements like 2 Peter 3, 3, and works that are non-biblical texts that only Peter would have used. He said, ah, come on, Stephen, where are you getting that from? Well, in 2 Peter, in chapter number 2, we find two things. Peter gets into the angelic wars and their purpose of being chained. That takes us into the story of the, the, the fights, the battles, like in the Assumption of Moses, with Michael, the archangel, fighting against the devil and his angels. We, we find connections like that to be found in works like the Assumption of Moses or soon to be in works like the Assumption of Moses. More specifically, Peter tells us that they were cast down into chains of darkness and that they were locked in to a place called Tatarus. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Cast them down into hell or Tatarus, live in the chains of darkness. That comes from first Enoch. So you have stories of the angels, their wars, the falls, the chaining, the early destruction for their sins going back to the days of Noah. All of that is said by 2 Peter 2. So it seems like that even Jude refusing to go out on his own and bring his own resources becomes dependent on his relationship to his brother, James, his connection to his half-brother Jesus as an eyewitness of his ministry, and the ancient texts of the Old Testament. And even when he uses ancient texts that are not canonical, he only uses the approved list books that Peter did. I think that's what's going on. I believe that's what's happening here. So the question is, in its composition, who is utilizing who? Again, I believe it's obvious. Despite what scholarship says, Jude is borrowing or using or depending, I would like to use the word depending, on the authority of Second Peter. I find it hard to believe differently. The evidence is right there. I know it's more of an attempt to discredit Peter than it is anything. I do not think Jude was first. Jude is indicating that the prediction of the apostles is a present day reality in his lifetime. He is almost verbatim, quoting 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Note that Jude is saying that, again, the apostles are making these statements, indicating that the composition of the book of 2 Peter is an apostolic book. Now, notice this. He didn't say Peter. He said the apostles. That's kind of a hint to some of the direction I'm going to go. Peter is writing a book attributed to his name in 2 Peter, and people dispute that big time. Even the early church had some issues with it. But notice how Jude says that this statement came from the apostles, plural. So that could be an indicator of the composition of 2 Peter, which we will discuss in another episode. So a couple things. First, I believe... Jude is first because of his quoting in a present sense, a past quote from the apostles in 2 Peter 3. Second, the more elaborate version is often secondary. Jude is elaborating on a previous statement. He's building and expanding on a previous statement. He's taking all of these connections I've read out loud to you, or at least by verse statements. They are expanded editions of 2 Peter. And typically, the elaborate version is the secondary, which is Jude. 
Sometimes the author will elaborate on a shorter text, but it is not likely for him to shorten an earlier account. Even Bauckham, who thinks 2 Peter comes after Jude, which I disagree with, says as much. He says there are cases where a more complex literary, literary work is based on a simpler one and a priori that might even seem a more like or likely procedure. But consideration of this particular case seems to indicate that it must be one in which some complex work is prior. It is obvious to me that Jude came before, or excuse me, came after, not before. I believe it was, in conclusion, the brother of Jesus, the brother of James. I believe they wrote it somewhere in the early 70s, after the destruction of Jerusalem. He's dealing with the heresies that have now permeated the church. I think he wrote this toward the end of his life, before his death. I think the churches did receive it and accepted it on the basis that he was an eyewitness, a brother of one of the bishops, and completely dependent on the Old Testament text, and completely dependent on 2 Peter's writing, and dependent on Peter's authority, and even so much so is only using extra-biblical works that Peter used in his own. Not any more than those. I think there's a, a major connection between 2 Peter and Jude that's ignored. Even the earliest manuscripts that we have, and, and we have some third century manuscripts, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, do I wish we had some early ones? Sure. But even if you look at it, 1st, 2nd Peter and Jude are together quite a bit in the writings. We have a third century manuscript that indicates as much, and I think that it should not be ignored when we're talking about things like P72. So going into this, I do believe it's an apostolic writing. I think Jude had every right as not being one of the 12 to write it based on all the criteria I just told you. I do believe it is a canonical book. I do believe it is a part of scripture. I do believe we should receive it as much. It is early attributed to for all the reasons in this show. So that's Jude. Uh, hopefully that was of help to you. And you can, again, like and, and uh, subscribe to our channel and share this and get the word out as we continue to go through the books of the New Testament. I trust this was a blessing. If you have questions, always put it in the comments. You're more than welcome to. And I try my best. I can't always do this with the busyness of life, but I do try my best to go in and, and, and comment back when I see questions and things like that. So always feel free to do that. Uh, we appreciate your support. And again, keep your eyes and ears open for upcoming events as well as upcoming episodes. I trust the Lord uh, will continue to bless our efforts at Explore Christianity. If you have any other questions you'd like to email us personally, you can go to explorechristianity.net. You can find our email there on contact and uh, reach out to us that way. And we'd be happy to answer any questions that you would like to be more private as well. Uh, please, again, like, subscribe, share this video, and may the Lord bless you and keep you, and may His grace be toward you. Thanks. Grace and peace to you.